We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, and I'll begin reading at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five more talents. So also he who had two talents made two more talents. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we do praise and thank you for your holy and precious word. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your holy work within us, that we would receive it, learn from it, grow from it, and fall deeper in love with you and follow you all the days of our life. Bless our pastor as he comes forward. Give him a strong, powerful voice, a heart that is willing to sacrifice and serve and to preach the truth of Jesus right to our soul. In your name we pray. Amen. 30 years, I said. It's been 30 years in the planning, some of you may doubt me, but others, I think, remember that it was about 30 years ago that we began to pray and plan for this day, just before 1990. God has now given us this beautiful new building, and the question before us is, now what? What do we do with this? So I'd like to turn to this familiar passage. I think it's one of the better-known parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's really about who we are in life. It's about choices we make in life. And I'll divide it into two things. The, what we believe about the nature of God. Who is the God who made heaven and earth? And secondly, what we believe about the purposes in our lives. And then thirdly, applying it to our church. What does that say about our mission? Why, what does God want us to do with this building? So, what is God like? What is God's nature? What do you think? How would you describe it? Not everyone agrees with that, but it's the backdrop of this parable. And 
really, when you think of it, it's the central question of life. Is there a God? That's an important question. And if there is a God, is God a taker or a giver? Is God one who delights to bless others? Or is he some sort of harsh taskmaster? There's this great division in this parable that shows that different people respond differently to that question of what is God's nature. So here's a parable about the talents. It's, as I said, a familiar parable. Because it's familiar, you may not recognize, if I can put it this way, how brilliant Jesus is here. In fact, that may be true in the whole of the Gospels. You know how when things are familiar, you don't recognize the genius of them. A short while ago, there was a young man who was passing through and he came to me because he was on his way to India and wanted to talk to me about it. I said, well, why are you going to India? He says, well, I want spiritual truth. I want to know who God is. Raised in, in this country, and I, so I asked him, so have you ever read the New Testament? He says, no, I've never read it. So I gave him a copy. It's familiar. He's heard the word Jesus a thousand times, and he doesn't think that there's insight into human nature and insight into spiritual truth in this most available book, the New Testament. And yet, actually, when he goes to India, he'll see how hungry people there are to learn about Jesus. They're anxious to find out who this Jesus was, and they revere him. They respect him and his words greatly. The point is, we dismiss the familiar, but we should not do that with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we have a speaker from London, a mediocre speaker from London, people will throng to hear him. If you have an exceptional speaker from Chicopee, people will say, he's just from Chicopee. I mean, why go to hear him? How good can he be? We somehow don't recognize the genius of something that's familiar, but Jesus is brilliant. And we have to recognize that as we read this parable and really all of the Gospels, that here he gives us insights into human nature, what you and I are like, and into what life is all about, and how everything in our life is connected to our view of God the Creator. So here's two kinds of servants, the faithful servants entrusted with five talents, and then with two talents, and then the one who is either, depending on your English translation, called a lazy servant or a slothful servant by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's entrusted by one talent. But notice how the relationships of the two are miles apart. I should say the relationships to God of the two are miles apart. It's almost as though you wonder, are they even thinking of the same God anymore? So the truth about God is critical. We've been, as you know, looking at First Thessalonians, and you know, the critical change, the dramatic change that took place in their life was when as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, they came to know the living and true God. In other words, they came to understand who the creator of heaven and earth really was. I have talked to people of many faiths, many religions, and no religion at all. And really, the question about the nature of God is a fundamental question. And the Thessalonians came to know in Christ the living and true God. This question affects our morals and values, our goals, really affects our relationships, how we love and who we love. It affects our hopes. It affects our ability to deal with the griefs and tragedies of life and how we deal with them. We've been seeing all this as we've been looking at 1 Thessalonians. Is there a God? Is there a creator of all that exists? And what is this true God like? Uninvolved, uncaring, you know. Maybe he created things and now he's off playing golf somewhere in heaven. 
Or is he loving, a personal God who cares about you and me, and he really wants us to know him and his love, and he wants to receive our love? It's a fundamental question, and it's behind this parable. So here's the divide. The faithful servants, as you read it, you see that they trust in the goodness and kindness of their master. The master, of course, being a picture of God in this parable. Just a few words, and as you read it, you can analyze it more closely. But you notice in verse 16 that when they're handed this treasure, they get to work immediately. There's an eagerness to doing what the Lord wants them to do. They want to please God. That's the orientation of their life. They work hard. They want to increase the value of what's been entrusted to them. And so the second word is they trade with what has been given. They take what's been given, the five talents, let's say, and they trade with it. Now, think about it. Trading is risky. I'm going to buy wheat here, and then I'm going to transport it to Persia, and I calculate the costs of the transportation and the servants and all the customs and duties I have to play, and then I think I'll sell it in Persia at a profit and I'll be okay. But there's a thousand things that can go wrong between here and there. So you use your best judgment, you do what you can, but at the end of the day, you're not in control. It's not the absolute safe thing to do. But even though they can't exactly predict or control what's going to happen, they go ahead and do it. Why? As you contrast it with the other servant, it's because they don't fear God. They know him to be wise, and they know him to be good, and they know him to be reasonable. Verse 15 says that he gave to each according to his ability. God knows me. God knows what he asks me to do is within the capacities he's provided for me. And so they have this kind of sense of freedom and abandonment and taking steps of faith, knowing that God will be with me and he'll give me success. It's what you and I, we're convinced of. We're convinced that there's a kind, generous, good God that rules over heaven and earth. That rules over each of our lives. It's fundamental to our walk with Christ. We're convinced of that by creation. I mean, everywhere you look, in fact, the more deeply you look, the more convinced you are that all of creation is precisely tuned to provide for us. As you know, and I've mentioned many times, many hardcore atheists have come to faith in God just through their study of nature, through their study of science. But for us, there's an even more powerful and deeper evidence of the kindness and generosity and goodness of God, and it's the cross. It's hard to imagine that this is the gospel of the true God, that the God who we dishonored and continue to dishonor, really, we stumble and fall all the time. We break commandments which we ourselves think are wise and good. We brought shame to him in a hundred different ways, but instead of judgment or punishment, what God did was come to us and give his life bore our shame, bore our pain on the cross so that he could offer peace to us, so that he could call us friend, as Jesus said. This is remarkable. It's, it's beyond anybody's expectation in all of history that God would be not just generous and kind, but listen to this, that he would be humble and gentle. And yet that's the God that's revealed to us, the creator who revealed himself in Christ Jesus. And that's the God that these servants knew. And you know, if we serve a God like that, it gives us tremendous freedom. It 
gives us a, a joy in trying things, knowing that, that the God who rules over us is for us and for us and for us. Now, the lazy servant had a completely different view of the master. In fact, maybe I'll just read what he says in verse 24 and 5. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. You're hard. I don't know if you know this, but you ask way too much of everyone who works for you. People are afraid to be around you. They don't want to deal with you. That's what he's saying. You're a God to avoid. You're a kind of God that people want to hide from, and I want to hide from you. I didn't want to think about you all during the days when you were gone. And here, you have what is yours. I kept it safe. You ever work for anyone like that? You know, you have to walk on pins and needles around them all the time. You, they're ready to criticize you at a moment's notice, and you're waiting for that inevitable criticism all the time. I bet you have. Maybe you do now. I know one of my early jobs in high school was a short order cook. Believe it or not, hamburgers, grilled cheese sandwiches, you know, I did all that. And boy, the manager was just a bear. She'd always find something wrong with everything I did. The tables aren't clean enough. You didn't put the chairs up on the tables in the right way. They should be perfectly square. And she hated the way I made grilled ham and cheese sandwiches. Why are you putting so much ham in there? How am I supposed to make money with all that ham you put in there? But I'll tell you, the customers loved my cooking. They, they always asked for me when they wanted a grilled ham and cheese sandwich. But you know, you just have to be careful around no matter what you do. And that's the accusation this servant is making against God. In his world, all of creation, all of his life is ruled by a very harsh ruler. The sovereign of heaven and earth is unkind, hard, cruel. And so he thinks, I have to fend for myself. There's all kinds of forces arrayed against me. And if I don't fend for myself, no one will. I have to pursue happiness with my own skill and with my own strength. I won't read all of it, but it really reminded me of William Henley's famous poem, Invictus. Remember from the 1800s? He sees the world as a cruel, harsh place, random chance buffeting him this way and that way. And his only hope is his own strength, his own fierceness, his own courage. He has this line. He says, under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Just me, just me alone. That's all there is. My strength, my skills, my pursuit of happiness against the whole world, even against this uncaring creator of heaven and earth. What's your view of God, you see? Here's two views of God with these two servants. You sort of look at them and you say, well, one of them can't know the true God, right? They're so different, so diametrically opposed that one of them has to be completely wrong. But these two views of God, secondly then, lead to life's purpose, how you live life, what your life is all about. So life begins. You notice that in verse 14, it says that when the Lord left, he gave to these servants his possessions. In fact, it's mentioned later in this parable also that these are the things that belong to God. In fact, in this parable, that's the real definition of talent. When we see the word talent 
in our English translations, we think of our English talent, right? Gifts and skills, things that you are able to do. But it's really not the word that's used in the original Greek. The original Greek uses the word talent. It's transliterated into English here. And really, talent there was, you might call it a unit of currency. It's really a weight. Could be a weight of gold or could be a weight of silver. And here, the amount entrusted to these people by the great master are huge amounts of treasure. Several years worth of salary depending on what your job was in that world. So the talent is a treasure. But in this parable, really, the talent is a representation of God's possessions entrusted to us. He entrusted them, God says, with my possessions. So what are the things God has entrusted to you and to me? Yeah, time, Sunday mornings, right? Every day of the week, opportunities, and yes, your skills, your talents, your gifts, your breath, life itself. Everything is from God. They're all his possessions entrusted to you. All we have is entrusted to us, you see. Everything. Probably the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. In the first chapter, 121, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We came empty-handed. We came empty-handed. We had nothing. Nothing to commend ourselves to the world. Have you ever seen a baby born with a resume in his hand? Nothing. There's nothing there. We didn't choose it. It wasn't up to us to choose our DNA. It wasn't up to us to even choose which family we were going to be born into. Who our parents might be what our experiences would shape us might be all through life. We weren't in charge. It wasn't up to us. All we have is his. And God put that into your hands, and God has put that into my hands. And he asked, now, what will you do with it? That's the question. Now, what will you do with it? That determines then how we live. You see, what we see as God's gifts to us and what we do with it determines the course of our life, how we choose priorities and all our values and all our relationships. So either we get to work like the faithful servants and we just delight in pleasing God. There's a pleasure in bringing a pleasure to God. Or like this lazy servant, we want to hide from him. We want to ignore him, have as little to do with him as is possible. That's the division so the lazy servant wants to live life as though really there is no God. He wants to play it safe, right? He wants to do the minimum. I don't know if you ever had to take a course. You know, you didn't like the subject, but it was required. And so you said, all right, what do I have to do to get a passing grade? That's all I want. That's what the lazy servant was doing. This harsh, demanding God better be happy that I kept his goods safe. Because that's all he's going to get out of me. The contrast is stark, isn't it? Because the faithful servants actually want more responsibility. That's weird, isn't it? They want more. That's the reward. In fact, let me look at two things. First, it says they got to work immediately. As I said before, it indicates an eagerness. Trading involved risks. It meant stepping beyond what was safe and comfortable for them. But they were happy to do it. 
happy to do it, eager to do it. Immediately they got to work, right away. There's something bigger that's driving them, that's overcoming whatever hesitations they may have had at taking this risk. I remember when we built the very first building project, you saw some of the pictures that were scrolling before the service. It was the new sanctuary to the chapel. We had to tear down a lot of the old building, and the rafters were filled with bat guano. And somebody had to go up there and scoop all that stuff out. And who would volunteer but this man who, how can I say it, he just had a germ phobia. He really, you know what, he wouldn't even eat cheese because he had read that cheese is manufactured by bacteria acting on milk. Bacteria, yuck, he wouldn't eat cheese. But he volunteered to go up there. He put on this mask that looked like one of those World War I gas masks, you know, and he put on some gloves and he, he shoveled out a hundred years worth of bat guano from the roof. Something grander, something bigger overcame whatever hesitation or fear he may have had. He wanted to do what he had to do to build this tool to add a sanctuary, to invite more people to the kingdom. And so that's what was happening here. The faithful servants wanted to please God. He'll smile at me and I'm eager for the smile of God on my life. But there's this second word here that when they presented what they had done to the master, he rewarded them and the reward was even more work, even more responsibility. And that tells us a lot about their relationship to God. In fact, here, giving them more responsibility is parallel to entering into the joy of the master. It's like King David. If you read the Old Testament, you see he wanted to build the temple, that first temple for Israel. And God said, no, you can't do it because your hands are bloody. You're a man of war. A man of peace has to build my temple. Oh, but David was eager to please God. And so what did he do? Well, he couldn't build a temple. That would be ridiculous to disobey the God who he's trying to please. So instead, what did he do? He gathered all kinds of fine wood and lumber from all over, you know, cedars of Lebanon. And he piled up gold and silver, which he knew his son Solomon would need when the time came. I'll just do everything I can. I'm eager to please the Lord. So that's what David did, and that's what these servants were doing. And isn't that what we do when we love someone? It's the expression of love. When we love, we give gifts because we want our beloved to have joy. We want to make them comfortable. Why? Because when they're comfortable, we're happier. Really, we find joy in giving joy to the one we love. And that's what's happening here. It's really the first commandment, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And these servants loved God. They knew him to be kind, good, wise. And they loved him. And they took pleasure in pleasing him. Our view of God affects how we live. And this parable exhibits that. Knowing God leads to our purpose, the style in which we live. To use all that we have for his joy. And then that brings me to, lastly, our mission here. This building is God's possession, you see. His possession. He's entrusted it to us. So now the question is, what will we do with it? He's put it in our hands, and he's, in effect, gone on a journey in terms of this parable. Now, what will we do with it? I kind of feel like if we look at the history of us as a church, as a group of people who loves the Lord, We've kind of lived this parable. 
There were stages of responsibility. All right, you were faithful with one talent. Now here's two talents. It went like that, stage by stage over a lot of years. He gave us a little chapel. Some of you have heard this and you know it and you've seen it. Some of you even remember how it looked at the very beginning. Some of you remember how homely it was. Really, it was homely. I always thought God kept it homely so nobody would want it. So that when the time came for us to start to meet there, it would still be there. The linoleum, you remember, was all ripped up. It had theater chairs like we have now, except some old theater had provided them and they were covered with old naga hide. Remember that stuff? And you know what happened, right? On hot summer days, people would sit and when they got up for the last table, it would be ripping sound. Everybody would be stuck to the chairs. Behind the pulpit, right here, actually just a few feet, there was an old stovepipe, a remnant when wood stove was there, when it was first built. I just can't imagine you know, how the preacher preached there with a wood stove right behind him. It kept the sermons short, I'm sure. And then we used it. We used it to the fullest extent we could for the pleasure of our God. And so God said, well, here's more. And so in 1987, we added a little sanctuary. It's hard to convey how risky that was. I mean, here we are in a huge sanctuary, comparatively speaking, and it's hard to convey how risky it was for people. I don't know how many, there were barely two dozen people taking on this project, which to us seemed like putting a man on the moon. You know, how are we ever going to do that? It was scary. But there were some men and women of great faith there, and we prayed, we fasted, and finally we felt like God was telling us to move. Like in Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, you know, where the people of Israel came up against the Red Sea, and they were crying out to God, it says, and God said, okay, enough of that. Enough crying out to me. Move. And as they began to move, God parted the sea. And so we moved, and God did part the sea. We, we invested in the new sanctuary, time, money, hours and hours of labor, and lots of joy reaped as a result of it. We used it. We used it. And so God said, here's more talents. You've done well, now here's more talents. And he gave us more responsibility. And we began to search for land. It was actually around 1990 that we began the search. We began to study how much land we'd need and where it would be. We Oh, man, we looked up and down everywhere we could. We couldn't find anything. We searched for a decade and a half, a long wait. And then God entrusted us with this piece of land. Really, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, we had already passed over this plot because we couldn't afford it. But unexpectedly, I won't go into the details, and we had to make a decision within a week. And so we met for a week. We prayed and fasted, and then we had a meeting, and we said, what should we do, Lord? And we moved forward. And God gave this land into our hands. We didn't say, oh no, I, I think we're pretty happy here, Lord. You know, really, do we have to do more? Can't we just hide in this little corner on old Federal Street? But no, we waited, we worked, we gave, we saved, and waited for God to give us the next step, which was five years down the road. Boy, these waits are long. Five years down the road. And in 2011, God entrusted us with Phase one, you know, where we were worshiping last Sunday. God was saying, okay, you've been faithful, now work for me here. Here's a new tool. Here's more of my possessions, which I give to you, I entrust to you, to use for my glory. And now we have this 
beautiful building. And so the question is, now what? I think, as Robert mentions, there's brothers and sisters who would have given, or would have given anything to sit where you're sitting right now on this day. Because they worked, they labored, they prayed for this to happen. They encouraged other people, as Robert mentioned, to keep hoping, keep working, never giving up. For several years, we met in a little shed on the point of this land in the dead of winter with a little kerosene stove, and we prayed, and we prayed, we prayed. It was a long time. We sometimes felt like it would never happen, but it did happen, and today they're rejoicing with us. I think they're witnessing our worship, and they're rejoicing at this day of fulfillment. And of course, you have labored. You have given generously. It's incredible how much labor there's been in the past few months. Really, it's incredible. My mind is whirling when I see what's happened in the last month in particular. And then this last week was just amazing. From morning till evening, people working, preparing this place for worship. I'll tell you something. It was a lot of energy. It was exhausting. And it was joyful. Because they weren't doing it as a job they were doing it for the glory of our God. So God is saying, okay, now what does God want us to do with it now? So the master in the parable went away and he was going to come back after a journey. So the trading was to happen till he returned. In fact, the context of this parable, as you read Matthew before and even after, is the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So the point is that there's a limited amount of time, unknown but limited amount of time, for us to do what God wants us to do. Limited, yes, by the end of history, but limited also by the windows of opportunity, which we know historically don't stay open. We don't know when they're going to slam shut. It's limited. So this building is a tool, and it's going to be used for its purpose only so long as the people have a vision to use it for that purpose. That's us. Otherwise, it just becomes a useless building, and it can happen. I pray and hope it won't. I pray that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will be captured by that same vision to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the news of a great and generous God who calls us to know him and serve him. But if that doesn't happen, this is just an empty building which could be used for anything. And we know it's happened, haven't we? All over. Amherst College, a great college. I'm not knocking it. But did you know that it was founded in 18... 21, for, let me quote, for the education of indigent young men of piety and talents for the Christian ministry. It's founded for poor young men who wanted to serve the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's anywhere, I don't even know if they have a department of theology anymore, actually. How about Mount Holyoke College? Originally, it was a seminary, which is interesting, a seminary for women and Mary Lyons, in 1835, said one of the goals would be to cultivate the missionary spirit among its pupils. That's a tough one, isn't it? It's the people. Beautiful buildings, beautiful institutions are there, but it's the vision that's carried on by the people who love God and want to serve him. Otherwise, it's just a shell that has missed its purpose. So it's not buildings, friends, it's you and me. It's our children, it's our grandchildren, it's the young people the young people who have worked so hard during this whole construction project. It's those who will follow them, who know this wonderful God who has called us to serve him, 
who find pleasure in pleasing him and who want to do his work and who want to use this building for that work. What to do till the master returns. Trade with East till I return. Well, we know what we're to do. Robert mentioned it actually right at the beginning. At the, the very closing verses of Matthew's gospel, the same gospel, Matthew 28, he said, I'll tell you what to do. Go into all the world. It's risky. Go outside your comfort zones and tell them about the good news that I've come. Teach them. Teach them what I've taught you. Bring them into my church. Bring them to be one of my people. Let them know the love and the blessedness of following the true creator. Those who have gone before us, and there's been several, they worked, they labored, they prayed, they gave, and God asked them to come home. And they heard when they went home, well done, good and faithful servant. And now God has entrusted us with this same building. We want to hear the same words, don't we? I pray that what we do individually, one by one, and what we do as a church will one day bring pleasure to God so that we'll all hear, well done, good and faithful servants at Christ Community Church. Amen. Lord, we pray for your grace to understand your word. We pray for your power, the power of your spirit to live it out. And we want this place, Lord, to honor you now and all God for generations to come by your by your power. We want to dedicate it, Lord, into your hands, knowing that you are the sovereign of heaven and earth, whose glory is the joy of all mankind, Lord. Receive our worship and receive our dedication to you and our prayer for your grace to do what you call us to do in this place. In your holy name, amen. My dad always used to say, uh, small things occupy small minds. Whenever he thought I was chattering on too much, I think. But when our lives are occupied with a vision of grand things, the, the purposes of God in creation and the purposes of God in our own life, then we are filled with the, with the glory and the joy of God. It expands us. And so that's my blessing today. May, may God make you aware always of his kindness and goodness. And may that goodness and kindness give you fearless courage to do all that he has purposed for you to do in your life. Amen.